This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. The crazy traditions of trademarking phrases, uh, to my recollection, uh, started uh, to catch attention when the term three-peat was trademarked by former NBA coach Pat Riley several uh, years ago. Now, singer Taylor Swift is trademarking several phrases that appear in the latest, in her latest album, 1989. So if you want to use the phrase, this sick beat, or party like 1989, you're going to have to compensate Ms. Swift. So why would she be doing this outside of possible monetary gain? To shed some light on this, we welcome in R. Polk Wagner, who is an intellectual property professor here at Penn, University of Pennsylvania Law School, as well as Christopher Sprigman, who is a professor at NYU School of Law and co-director of their Engelberg Center for Innovation Law and Policy. Polk, great to have you in the studio. Thanks very much. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. Christopher, great to have you on the phone with us. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, this is an interesting move, uh, Polk. I'll start with you because she's obviously concerned about her intellectual property. And, and as we said before we went on the air, there is a financial component to this. But in a lot of respects, it's protecting that intellectual property is the reason why she would be trademarking these types of phrases. Well, right. I think it's both. Okay. Um, I think she both has an interest in in protecting uh, what she views as her intellectual assets, which uh, I think you know she she thinks are some of these lyrics, particularly the well known uh, snippets out of her songs. And I think she does ultimately hope to be able to use some of these yeah. if her trademark filings are to be believed on various products, goods, and services that she either is already selling in some other form or plans to offer under her name or under the name of some of these uh, trademarks that she's getting. But the interesting thing, I guess, Christopher, is, is that uh, I would believe that if you are somebody that actually has done a song, that you would have rights to the the the, the names of the songs, uh, the name of the album, uh, the name to uh, phrases within the song, already basically implicitly put in because of you writing that song, especially if it is a song you created. Uh, obviously, that's not the case. Yeah, it's not. So the copyright law, which gives rights and things like uh, song lyrics, um, doesn't apply the copyright offices held to, to words and short phrases. So there's some difficulty, for example, copywriting a song title because it's a short phrase, although there's no difficulty copywriting song lyrics as a whole. I think Taylor Swift has turned to the trademark law because what she wants to do is kind of pull little short phrases out of her lyrics and have some kind of property right in them when they're applied to products and services, products like knitting needles and Christmas stockings and baby bibs and sweepstakes contests. So she's uh, she's gotten imaginative and um, her lawyers have have cooked up this scheme and, and obviously that's uh, that that tells us a, a little bit about how you feel about that uh because uh she has really kind of tried to cover the board in every way shape or form a lot of different areas where these specific phrases are concerned yeah well okay so i think it's a smart move um and i'm not um I'm not a purist on these issues. I think smart moves that make people money are good. Um, but I do think that there's something to think about here, which is that the trademark law is really a consumer protection device. It's meant to 
prevent consumers from becoming confused about the source of products. So you walk into a footlocker and you see some shoes that have three stripes on them and you think, oh, that's Adidas, right? Now that's good because if you have experience with Adidas, it, it, it kind of helps you get what you want, right? If yeah. you like them, you want them. If you, you don't like them, you avoid them. If some other shoe manufacturer comes in and uses a stripe that's similar, then that runs the risk of confusing you and, and kind of adding some search cost to your shopping experience. The, the real question is whether you know, Taylor Swift's use of the trademark um, system serves that purpose at all. Do, do, when people see this sick beat on a, on a baby bib, do they think, oh, this this baby bib comes from Taylor Swift, it's licensed by Taylor Swift. It, does that lyric actually communicate anything about the source of products? That, that to me, is, a, is an open question. But obviously, this is a, ends up being a, a situation where uh, Taylor Swift's brand is, is growing uh, markedly over the last few years. She you know, has deals with, uh, I, I think, Target or, or with one big, big box retailer to have a clothing line. So this is just really her brand trying to just uh, grab as much as they possibly can. Right. I think that, that one of the things, I mean, I, I largely agree with, with Christopher's view on this about whether this is something that, that we and we should talk about, whether that's a good thing or not. But it is the case that Taylor Swift has a lot of products, and I think she's planning on broadening her product scope. And so although you might not think automatically that a baby bib that says this sick beat on it uh, is something that Taylor Swift has done, if indeed she has a big clothing line that's in, in Target, you know, and, and has baby products and bibs that do say <laughs> this sick beat, then the, the landscape changes to some degree, and you, you might think that in fact that's a protection she should should get. Right. Uh, I wanted to play you a couple of pieces of, of music uh, just to tell you exactly what we're talking about. Uh, let's play number one there, Lorraine, if you can. Well, and, and you know, you could have uh, a, a variety of different things, uh, and, and obviously the term incredible things possibly could be one that, that she would want to do uh, as well in that. So, I mean, it, it's an interesting area to kind of get into the fact that we're talking about phrases that people could be using every day in the course of their, their you know, traveling through a city, yet they have become the, the focal point of a very intense uh, uh, legal fight over this. Well, yes, and I think one of the things that's most important for people to recognize is that trademarks are channeled, which is that it's not accurate, actually, to say that just because she can get a trademark, even for 15 different kinds of products, yeah. on a particular fairly common party like it's 1989 or this sick beat or something like that. That does not mean that people can't use that in a lot of, in basically any other uh, context in which she wants. The other thing that trademark law does have is important safety valves. You yeah. can use trademarks in a way that would criticize or parody or express uh, commentary on sure. the original mark owner. So, so although we do allow the propertization, as uh, Professor Sprigman said, of these words, it's not a complete propertization by any stretch of the imagination, no, no. matter how much the Taylor Swift's of the world would want it to be. Yeah, Polk's right, and that's actually really important, that it, it, it's a partial propertization. So the test is always whether, in fact, the use by someone not the mark owner would confuse consumers, would, would cause consumers to believe that 
the, the, the product issue, be it the baby bib or the knitting needles, came from the, the mark holder. That, that's right. the test. And or in any way, that's the test that would apply here. And that, that's, a, that's an important channeling of these rights. Uh, let me ask you a question, because being in my later 40s, uh, I remember uh, Prince having a song, Party Like It's 1999. And obviously, she, she in some respects is playing off of that. Uh, for those people that remember that song, Christopher, would there be any uh, any point at, at this in this case where you know Prince's representatives could go to her and say, "Hey, l- listen, you're playing off of something that I made very famous, obviously several years ago." So I doubt it. Although Prince is actually famously litigious, so he sued people for copyright infringement. In, in, in particular, he sued a guy who took that unpronounceable symbol that he was calling himself yeah. for a while and yeah. turned it into a guitar. He sued that guy. So it's not that Prince is a stranger to the federal courts, but I, you know I doubt he would sue here. Maybe who knows? But it, it wouldn't be a very promising lawsuit. So party like it's uh, well, 1999 is the name of the Prince song. Yep. Um, that doesn't foreclose Taylor Swift from wanting us to party like it's 1989 and writing about that in a song. It's a little ironic that she then turns around and attempts to propertize at least to some degree that phrase. I mean, I think I think that the broader point here is about her brand, and you know I think it's funny Taylor Swift and Katy Perry don't get along very well. But they're very similar in one respect, which is they're both making, I think, somewhat adventurous intellectual property claims these days. So Taylor Swift is filing these trademark applications for these phrases from her songs. And Katy Perry is claiming to own the left shark, that shark that was dancing next to her in the Super Bowl halftime show, danced pretty badly, and everyone thought it was funny. The Internet basically had a collective laugh, turned the left shark into a meme, gave him a name. Right? Katy Perry then turns around and starts claiming ownership over that, both because she has a copyright, she says, in the left shark costume, which she probably doesn't, and because she's now filed trademark applications of her own to own the words left shark, right shark, drunk shark, and basking shark. I I didn't know you could actually own a basking shark. That's an actual (laughs) shark. Um, And she's filed a um, a a trademark uh, application to own the shape of the shark as well. So, you know, I think this is interesting for both of them because, you know, these are both basically pop princesses of the day. Yeah. Um, you know, their, their notoriety, their celebrity is their stock and trade. Um, you know, I wonder whether this is dangerous to their brand. They look a little greedy. Um, you know, the Internet makes sure. a meme. Katy Perry tries to, dra- to, to, to grab it. Prince, you know, tells us about 1999. She tells us about 1989 and tries to own it. Yeah. It's a, it's a little bit cheeky. I guess is the way I would put it. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things to me about this is the front lines for a lot of this is Etsy, right, where people are making sort of homemade or or self-made goods. And so in some ways, this is a technology story, right, where now we have this technology of distribution, of manufacturing, of ability to reach consumers for people basically in their home businesses that has, has exploded over the last decade or so. And because of that, you're seeing a lot more of the conflict between intellectual property rights and what people would otherwise, you know, you would make something fun for your friend Mm -hmm. that would say this sick beat on it, maybe, but you wouldn't have the ability to send it to a million people or post it on a website where you could charge $15 and send, send these bibs out. So what part of this is, is just this new era of the way that e- the commerce is done now yeah. um, and and the way that it's interacting with intellectual property law, which really calls for more intellectual property literacy. I think that a lot of people who are out there don't fully get the way that intellectual property law works. And in a lot of ways, it's totally reasonable because it isn't 
often uh, particularly intuitive and lacks common sense in some ways. But it is, I think, an interesting new world where you have, mm-hmm. uh, as as Chris said, the you know the pop princess is sort of pushing the envelope in one way, and yet on the other side, you've got people pushing the envelope on SD almost every day. Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, 844 Wharton, 844-942-7866 is the number. If you'd like to jump in the conversation as well, we'd like to hear your comments on Taylor Swift and her trademarking of these phrases. Give us a call now, 844-942-7866. Here in the studio with us is Polk Wagner, intellectual property professor here at Penn. Also, uh, Christopher Sprigman, a professor at uh, NYU School of Law and co-director of the Engelberg Center uh, for Innovation, uh, Law, and Policy. I guess the interesting thing, that, then going forward is and i mentioned this uh polk to you beforehand is i worked at christopher i worked in baseball before uh i got into this end of the business uh for about 13 years and one of the teams in minor league baseball down in Asheville, north carolina owns the trademark to the term thirsty thursday huh. which and i i I, wow. che- I checked with a friend of mine uh who works for the team beforehand chris smith great guy Except for the fact he's a fan of the University of North Carolina, but that's something else. Uh, but but I, I talked to him about how that process went, and the owner of the team, you know, 25 years ago, trademarked that term specifically because that was an event they did at their stadium, and they give other minor league affiliated teams the right to use that. Uh, at either no compensation or maybe a dollar or something like that, but everybody else has to go through them. And it, and it's interesting that a term like that for an event like that has a trademark on it. Well, everybody else has to go through them. I think that's a bit of wishful thinking. So if I, right. they're in North Carolina, you said, right? Yes, correct. So I open a, let's say I open a bar in New York City and I advertise, you know, a special for Thirsty Thursday. I don't think any consumer is going to be confused and think that the North right. Carolina minor league team is sponsoring my Thirsty Thursday exactly. happy hour. So the fact is the trademark law there has a de facto kind of geographic reach. It doesn't reach New York from North Carolina because, you know, in New York, people barely think of New Jersey. They don't even think of North Carolina. Sure, yeah. And the important thing to understand, I think, in terms of sort of literacy of the way that that intellectual property generally, but trademark law also works, is just because somebody asserts that they have rights to keep you from doing something doesn't necessarily mean that that's true. right? Right. So everything you read in a demand letter is not necessarily... Um, going to come to fruition, yep. and I think that that you know we we do and we want to in some cases allow people to trademark some of these phrases for things that they've invested money in in creating quality products, uh, but uh, you know the the limits of those are very real and and very much a part of trademark law as much as getting the marks in the first place. I, I would be I would be remiss if I didn't mention it's the Asheville tourists, Asheville, North Carolina, and by the way, if you've never wondered. Just watch the end of the movie Bull Durham. That's where he hits his last home run in McCormick Field in Asheville, <laughs> North Carolina. So, Chris, all the best to you. Uh, you. Uh, no, the the other Chris. My friend is actually a Chris as well. So, um, but 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 it is interesting because uh, you're also seeing getting back to the branding part of this. This goes also back to uh, Taylor Swift being involved with the move to take her music off of Spotify. Uh, and get involved with uh, a project that Garth Brooks has started to really provide another avenue for artists to be able to present their music online, which obviously was a big topic within the last couple of months. Yeah, it's been a it's been a really big topic in the music industry and, and to some degree in the intellectual property 
industry as well. I mean, I think this goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, which is that there's a recognition now, I think, among particularly uh, prominent performers that they are major brands. I mean, they've yeah. always sort of known this, yeah. but I think the the limits uh, that they now see are expanding, right? Their, their thinking is expanding. They're not wedded to any particular channels anymore. Mm-hmm. They're not wedded to any particular record uh, labels. They start their own labels. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the landscape of business in that industry, as well as many others, is really changing to such a degree that, that it's now becoming... Um, very much common to think of yourself as your own sort of personal uh, corporation brand sure. uh, manufacturing business all in and of yourself. And that then is going to lead these uh, individuals, companies, et cetera, to probably be even more aggressive in the future about asserting intellectual property rights, more aggressive about channeling their music or their, yeah. their goods in particular areas and, and, uh, and distribution mechanisms. Uh, and so I think this is just the absolute beginning of what we're going to see. Chris, I was going to ask you the same thing. So where, where do we go from here where this is all, all concerned? You know, I agree with Polk about the future, and I think one of the things that's causing this shift is what happened starting in 1999, which was the birth of Napster and then a succession of peer-to-peer file sharing systems, also cyber lockers. You know, the, the record industry has tried to suppress these. The U.S. government has tried to suppress these. It's largely failed. Yeah. Um, revenues from recorded music are down probably about 60, 65% now adjusted for inflation. You know, the, the industry has shrunk a lot in terms of its revenues from recorded music. Um, streaming is starting to pay off a little bit, so some of that is starting to come back, although yeah. never what it was. So while this has happened, a lot of emphasis in the industry has kind of shifted to both the live performance, which is doing very, very well, lots of revenues coming from that, yeah. and merchandise. <clears throat> so merchandise markets are growing. And this leads to what Polk had mentioned, which is the growth of these brands, these brands for stars, but also not, not even for the biggest stars, for, for the kind of next bracket of performers who are trying to build their brand. Now, again, I think this, is, this could be good in the sense that um, you know, there's lots and lots of product differentiation that comes out of this, and yeah. lots of demand gets satisfied. If these markets are competitive, and if, if, if the, there's a... Um, a fair amount of change and churn in these markets that could be interesting. I don't. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but I do think it's driven to some degree by piracy. Let's play a little bit. Uh, another piece of, of music from Taylor Swift. This is the one that really uh, we're, we're talking about here. This is uh, from Shake It Off. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, obviously this sick beat is one, but you could realistically, you know, you could trademark Shake It Off. You could trademark whole songs, every word that an artist has in a in a song. I mean, could you? In theory, you certainly could, yeah. um, in particular for uh, items, goods, services, products, et cetera, that were not uh, directly descriptive of yeah. those things, right? So one of the things that, that you can do uh, that's important to understand about trademark law is that you can trademark the word Apple for computers, but you can't trademark the word Apple for Apple, right? Sure. It doesn't it doesn't work that way. So she can make 
uh, claims about trademarks and file for trademarks on things that are unrelated. You know, the, the Christmas stocking that says shake it off on yeah. it, right? I mean, that doesn't make any sense, which is exactly why she can get a trademark on it. So yeah. um, I think it's important for people to understand that there are sort of real limits, although, yeah. although it is certainly possible that she could just go through her songs and pick out virtually a line from every or a, a lyric from every line and, and trademark it. Uh, you know, there are real limits to, to the scope of that. And every time she does that, she's risking money, right? She has sure. to pay money to do this. And and I think that back to something Christopher said earlier is she risks reputation, right? I mean, this yeah. is, this is you know, one of – she has to walk a careful line here, right, between uh, being an aggressive brander, promoter, builder of the Taylor Swift brand yeah. and crossing that line into aggressively suing her her fans and customers, right? And then that, I think, you know, tilts things the other direction. So I think, you know, the Katy Perry's of this world, the Taylor Swift's of this world, and, and even the next tier of stars are really going to have to struggle with where that line lies as they go forward. Christopher? Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, I think the, the line is shifting right now, um, and we'll see. I mean, these are kind of test cases, and I'm really interested to see whether you know, Taylor Swift and Katy Perry pursue these things, and if yeah. they do, whether it comes at the cost of their the affection the public has for them. One of the things that in reading all of the different categories, she one was like non-medical paper products. It was some ridiculous thing. And I was like, I think to myself when I read it, I was like, I guess she could have her own line of, of, of shake it off or this sick beat band-aids, you know, realistically, if she wanted to do that. She could and may well be something she's planning. I mean, one of the fun things that you can do, everybody can go to the Patent and Trademark Office. It's online. You can search, yeah. uh, you know, for Taylor Swift, owner of the marks, and you get, I searched it myself this morning, you get 109 results. You can actually click mm. through and, and look at all of the various trademark filings she's made. And in particular, note the categories in which she has uh, asserted uh, that she's going to use the marks. And it is actually pretty interesting, ranging from, um, uh, you know, shampoos and, and things like that to stationery to yeah. uh, all sorts of apparel, which, of course, makes a lot of sense. But then the Christmas stockings and things like that are, you know, are, are some sometimes you just scratch your head. and But there must be a plan. I mean, yeah. in order to file for these marks, she has to assert an intent either that she is currently using the mark in that way or she intends to use it in that way. And so there must be some. There must be some reason behind it, um, and it'd be interesting <laughs> to see, uh, you know, what comes out of it. We may be seeing it in all our different Targets and Walmarts coming up here in the next few months. I fear that may be true. <laughs> well, then, Christopher, as an industry as a whole, as we kind of alluded to a little bit ago, we're talking about a, a shift, and obviously not the entire music industry, because there are obviously there are some uh, types of music artists that maybe not lend themselves to as much of this type of branding as others, but certainly the door opens up for if for a lot of different artists to be able to try and, try and trademark a lot of different phrases for a lot of different products coming up. Yeah, I mean, look, are people going to do this? Um, maybe. Um, but again, it, you can get trademarks, and then the question is, are you going to enforce them? Yeah. So there's, there's two ways you try to enforce them. One, which relatively few people do, is you, you file lawsuits. So you see products or services out there that you think are going to confuse consumers, you file lawsuits, you fight it out in court. So that happens, obviously. But it, much more frequent is the lawyer letter, the kind of, you know, the cease and desist letter, the nasty gram that you yeah. get. Um, you're an Etsy vendor, and you get this letter that says, take, it, take this down. Right. Why? Because you're violating trademark. So 
these are, you know, potentially dangerous because they tend to take sometimes a fairly aggressive tone where um, the ultimate merits of the case are unclear. And again, you know, lawyers can do that, but the world has changed in a way that I think is pretty important that, that lawyers probably should begin to understand, which is those letters then get posted to the internet, right? Yeah. They get shared on social media. Yep. So Katy Perry, I mean, I, my own personal story about this is Katy Perry sent out a letter to a sculptor um, who was sculpting Left Shark and selling 3D print files of Left Shark on Shapeways, which is a place if you have a 3D printer, you can go and download files and print your own Left Shark. Yeah. So she receives, uh, uh, this sculptor receives a very um, uh, aggressive letter from a lawyer. And, you know, a bunch of people, he, he posted it to Twitter and to his blog, and a bunch of people took a look at it and said, you know, this is, this is over-aggressive. So I, I got involved with this guy just on a pro bono basis to help him out. And, you know, an exchange of letters goes back and forth. And it, it actually gets some attention because people are very interested in what Katy Perry does and, yeah. and as a consequence what Katy Perry's lawyers do. I don't think at the end of the day those claims have come off looking very good. I think they've come off looking a little bit greedy. Um, so, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll see assertions like this, but when they're done by people with some public profile, they're, they're a double-edged sword. They can be costly. I think Chris is right in, in a couple of points here. One is that one of the interesting and unique quirks about the trademark law is that effectively – the law itself uh, encourages and might even require you to be a relatively zealous uh, advocate in favor of your mark. Right? Yeah. One of the things that can happen to a trademark is if it enters into sort of widespread public use, you effectively lose it. Right? Sure, so yeah. Things like aspirin has have been lost as trademarks mm -hmm. because of widespread public use. So, uh, you know, you do have an incentive to send out these letters if for no other reason than to prove to people that you shouldn't overuse the mark, even if ultimately you're going to let them let them use it. Yeah. The other thing is, is very important for the system, for the trademark system, for our understanding of the system, and for the way that the system operates to have some pushback every now and again. Okay. And, uh, because otherwise, if you um, have a system where merely sending a letter frightens people uh, away from doing something that they should otherwise have the perfect right to do, um, then effectively we've given the trademark owners, the copyright owners, the intellectual property owners more rights than they probably deserve, more mm -hmm. rights than the system is designed to give them. And so I commend, you know, Chris in helping Left Shark. I think that's a, an excellent <laughs> thing. You know, the we've had situations here where Louis Vuitton uh, sent a threatening letter to the University of Pennsylvania Law School because a student group was running a really? fashion uh, intellectual property conference and made a parody of their famous logo to, for use on their posters. How they found the posters that were only hung up at the at the Penn Law School is an interesting uh, case study of how aggressively Louis Vuitton yeah. polices their intellectual property rights. And it was important because uh, we were, because we are at the University of Pennsylvania where there's plenty of lawyers uh, and, and are, uh, have a general counsel's office that's very supportive of the students and the student groups, we were able to push back um, and tell basically Louis Vuitton to, to you know, Go away. Yeah. And that was the last we heard of it. Um, and uh, I think that's important. It's important to have some pushback every now and again or else the rights uh, inevitably get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that balance that intellectual property law is supposed to strike between uh, the owners, the users, um, the innovators, the creators gets upset if we don't, if we don't all sort of play – uh, on the same field. Well, I'll ask you about Louis Vuitton because I remember several years ago, uh, 
uh, going with uh, my girlfriend at the time into New York City. And, and everybody, I think, that's been to New York City knows there's that one section of New York City where you can get any knockoff that you want. from. I'm sorry, Chris. Canal Street. Yeah, yeah Canal Street. And, and you know, I would think that that Louis Vuitton would be have to be down there every day of the week uh, of the year to to try and stop those people that that are selling the knockoffs uh, of not only Louis Vuitton but all the. I'm sure there's about 50 different brands down there. I'm sure Oakley probably could be down there as well. Yeah, but I'm not sure why they should be. So they could be down there every day, 24 hours a day, and still probably not make a dent in it okay. because the phenomenon is so huge. But, you know, my 15-year-old son said something to me the other day that really just crystallized it for me. So he said, isn't it odd that, you know, Soho, the probably the most vibrant shopping district in New York for luxury goods, is right next to Canal Street? Isn't that odd? Yeah. And actually, it's, it's odd, but not maybe in the way he was thinking. So the, the reason it's odd is because in New York, you have a thriving market for counterfeits, but you also have a thriving market for luxury goods. And the, the two things are not unrelated. Yeah. Right? You have a thriving market for luxury goods in part because you have a thriving market for counterfeits, and the causal hour runs in the other direction okay. as well. So you know, I think what you have to ask yourself if, if you're a luxury goods company is, to what degree are the $20, $30, $50 knockoffs of the $5,000 LV bag that are being sold down on Canal Street, to what degree do those actually take away your customers? The answer is virtually never. So right. virtually the person who can buy the Louis Vuitton bag is virtually never going to be a customer for the guy with the bench on Canal Street. What might be happening is that the people who go to Canal Street are signaling their desire for the thing that they can't afford, and maybe that signal that's being sent about desire actually reinforces your brand. So there's a woman named Renee Gosling, I believe now is at MIT, who did a, a study of, of purse parties. These are parties where people sell and trade counterfeit sure. bags. Yeah. And one thing she found is, a, is 43% of the women who traded counterfeit bags in the period later went on to buy the real thing when they had the income to do so. And, you know, what, what I said about Renee's findings was, you know, these counterfeit bags are kind of like a gateway drug. Um, <laughs> so if that's the case, then to the extent that Louis Vuitton is spending too much resources trying to, to get a handle on that counterfeit market, which is basically trying to stick your finger in a dyke, yeah. um, they're probably wasting their money. But that's the, their money. The interesting trick is anyway. how much should Louis Vuitton enforce then, right? Because I think that the optimum level of enforcement for Louis Vuitton is not zero because they right. don't want everybody um, making uh, Louis Vuitton stuff and, and selling it at any price. And yet, I think, as, as you've said, it's not, um, uh, you know, it, the level of enforcement is maybe not 100%. And right. so uh, the trick for Louis Vuitton is making it appear that the you know, the core product, the brand, the, the, the cachet that you get from carrying that bag down the streets of New York maintains at the same time you are not so aggressive as to cut off what, what I think everybody sort of intuitively understands is really, you know, a, a like you said, a gateway drug and an introduction to the brand yeah. or an introduction to the lifestyle that ultimately is going to pay off for Louis Vuitton. And, and so one of the, you know, interesting parts of this brave new world is how all of these brands and this would probably you know going back to the taylor swifts as well right they're going to have to navigate this line too right yep. i mean taylor swift's going to have to figure out when she if she gets these these trademarks uh to these phrases is she going to want to be super aggressive to sure. the to the you know to the small businesses who are who are trying to make a buck uh selling 
you know, the baby products with shake it off on it or something like that. <laughs> is that is that worth it to her? Um, and I think that's a very interesting and difficult calculus and, and one that, that uh, you know, intellectual property law is, is uh, plays a big part of, but so does, you know, the way that society thinks about intellectual property it's, law. It's interesting. As soon as you said baby products and shake it off, all I could think of was talcum powder. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I mean, it, it makes it's, sense. It's, right? it's, it's it's right there. Yeah. Uh, final question, uh, Chris. I'll start with you. What is, what is your gut feeling in terms of the judge's ruling uh, on the on whether she's going to receive the the trademarks on these phrases? Well, it won't be a judge. It'll be the U.S. Or, Patent and Trademark okay. Office. And so and this will go through an administrative review at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and they will they will look for a few things. Whether in fact they think that these. Um, are distinctive, and I think they probably are, because as Polk pointed out, if you put this sick beat on a baby bib, it, it doesn't look like it's describing anything. It looks yeah. like it's basically communicating the source of product. So I think they will grant it. The, the question then is, are these enforceable in court? Um, and that will depend. It will be very context and fact-specific. So courts will be asking whether some substantial number of consumers are likely to be confused. Yeah by the defendant's use of the mark in commerce. And that, that's an impossible question to answer in, in a general sense. It's, it's really a fact-bound question. I, I, I agree with Chris. I think he's exactly right that this is going to be very fact-specific down the road. I think it's pretty likely that she's uh, going to get these trademarks. But of course, getting a trademark is like getting a hunting license. It doesn't actually get you anything necessarily. Yeah. You yeah. have to decide then whether to enforce it. And then if you decide to enforce it, you actually have to win the cases. Um, I think that uh, this is, you know, a story we're going to see repeated over and over again in, in a variety of contexts. I think that, you know, if she's if what she's doing is just picking out a few areas of, of commerce that she's planning to get into, things like stationery, things like novelty items, mm -hmm. um, it might be interesting to see if she actually does follow through on, on producing those products, putting them in, say, for example, Targets or, or Walmarts and, and becoming sort of that part of the Taylor Swift brand. And if yeah. that's the case, then I think her claims to the trademarks get, get stronger. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.